Let me just say before I get started that there's a lot of meat in all three of today's readings, which of course I was aware of, and I picked only one of them to talk about. But as I was sitting here listening to them being read, I thought, oh, I need to, and, and if I could only, but you get one. But the, but the thing I want you to think about from Jer Jeremiah is the concept of the experience of being a prophet. And what I want to, you to think about from the First Corinthians reading is about the importance, the primacy of love. Episcopal priest and preacher Barbara Brown Taylor tells a story about attending a retreat where people were invited to describe a situation in which someone had been Christ to them. After a bit of reflection, someone told a story about a friend who had stayed close throughout a long illness. Another participant described a neighbor who had filled the void left by an absent father. But eventually, one woman stood up and said, well, the first thing I thought about when I tried to think of who had been Christ to me was, who in my life has told me the truth so clearly that I wanted to kill him for it? As Jesus discovered, when you tell the truth, that's when the trouble starts. Today's gospel picks up where last week's gospel ended. Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, preaching his first, and apparently also his last, sermon to his hometown crowd. He reads to them from the soaring messianic vision of Isaiah, announcing that the Spirit of God brings good news to the poor, release to those in captivity, sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. They've always loved this passage, and he knows it. And then he announces, today, here and now, this promise has come true. It's important to also notice what Jesus doesn't read from Isaiah. Because that passage in Isaiah goes on, telling of the day when the Lord will trample down all of Israel's enemies, crush them underfoot and restore Israel to its rightful, glorious place. Jesus leaves out that part. But at this point, the congregation is anxiously awaiting what they're sure is coming next. Because word on the street is Jesus has done some amazing, miraculous things in Capernaum. And now they're convinced that it's their turn. They're his own community, after all. They're not strangers. Surely that should entitle them to certain privileges. If he's really the fulfillment of such good news, they should qualify for the friends and family discount. Their hearts are warm and their hands are open, ready to accept the divine swag that they are sure they deserve. But Jesus responds with, let us say, testiness. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, says the man preaching in his hometown. For the first time in Luke's gospel, Jesus claims the role of prophet 
and he's preparing himself for the rejection that prophets so often face. One of my best reference books, a book called Crazy Talk, a not-so-stuffy dictionary of theological terms, defines a prophet as one to whom God has given a message, causing him or her to resort to wild stories and wilder behavior in order to get that message across. Prophets aren't fortune tellers. They don't foresee the future. Their role is to deliver a warning or a promise from God to a community that needs to hear it. They often speak inconvenient truths that people are reluctant to accept. Speaking the truth will sometimes cost a prophet their reputation, their freedom, or their life. Now, you know why Jeremiah was reluctant. And so Jesus, the prophet, God's messenger, lets loose one of those provocative, offensive truths by reminding this Nazareth community that God's idea of community is far bigger than theirs. He tells them not one, but two stories about how God, through great prophets, had passed over Israel in order to minister to Gentiles, people beyond their religious and cultural border walls, first to the widow in Sidon, and then to Naaman the Syrian, who was actually an officer in the army of Israel's enemies. Jesus is pointing out that God's kingdom unfolds even in the least expected, most repugnant places where God was not thought to be and had no business being. Jesus' message isn't shocking because he extends the boundaries of God's mercy and love to include outsiders. It's shocking because he doesn't recognize any boundaries whatsoever. The curious thing is, Jesus wasn't telling the congregation anything new. He was recounting stories that were right there in their own scriptures, beginning in Genesis with God's promise to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But that was not really the scripture that they wanted to focus on, and definitely not what they wanted to hear. Instead, the community explodes in anger. How can you tell us the promise is fulfilled today in our hearing if it isn't fulfilled for us? We come here to this synagogue to be consoled, to be led and protected by the strong arm of God and God's love for us, not to hear that someone else deserves our blessing. These promises were supposed to be for us, not for everyone. We've been faithfully waiting for God to come and make us great again. So here we are at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And already we start to get a sense of how it's going to turn out. Jesus somehow slips away today, but his offended listeners, listeners will catch up with him eventually. 
They'll hear a little more of his message. They'll get a little angrier. And finally, they'll shut him up by hanging him on a cross. We're not as different from those folks as we might like to think. I hate to acknowledge this, but Friday morning at work, I noticed two men walking down the hall ahead of me, engrossed in conversation. One of them was someone who I honestly do not like. He's lazy, and yet he's very well paid. He's egotistical, and he regularly publicly demeans his employees. But walking beside him and very thoughtfully engaged with him was someone that I have great respect and regard for. He's warm and generous with his support and attention. And in my tiny good versus evil mind, I thought, why is he being so nice to him? Why doesn't he save that kindness for people who actually, you know, deserve it? No, we're not as different from those Nazareth folks as we'd like to think. God's idea of community is immeasurably bigger than ours is, too, here at Trinity. Lots of us have known Jesus for many years, or at least we think we have. But when his message calls us out of our comfort zone, we can respond with disbelief and anger, too. I think if Jesus were preaching here today, he might say something like this. And and these are his words, not mine, because these are hard words for me to say. When I talk about this good news, that's not just for the faithful, not just for the folks on Trinity's membership roster, not just for people who are clean, educated, and socially appropriate. It's also for the people that you loathe. White supremacists, ex-gay conversion therapists, MAGA hat wearers and Confederate flag wavers, drug addicts who neglect their kids and rob carryouts, bigots, harassers of every stripe, conservative Supreme Court justices, Now, at this point, some of us would probably be squirming and looking around and furrowing our brows and considering our righteous counter-arguments, but Jesus wouldn't miss a beat. He'd wrap up by saying, my Father's love and blessing are for all. And as we progressives like to say, all means all. The ways in which you want to distinguish the worthy from the unworthy are meaningless in God's kingdom, where no one is worthy and everyone is welcome. When you embrace and live into your identity as a cherished child of God, there's no need for walls to keep out enemies, because there are no enemies. No enemies. Only family members. And these family members are not burdens to be borne. They are not problems to be solved. They are relatives to be embraced and relationships to be nurtured.
But we don't so much want to hear that God doesn't deplore the people we find deplorable. We don't really want to quite believe that God loves the people who disturb and offend and even threaten us, that they belong to God as surely as we do. The problem isn't that we're loved any less. The problem is that the people we can't stand, the people who can be genuine pains in the ass, are loved just as much as we are. That's hard to understand. That's hard to live with. But just look at the Gospels. Every time someone draws a line between who's in and who's out, you are guaranteed to find Jesus with the outsiders, whoever they are. He has horrible taste in companions. But did you ever think, really, that's the example we're called to follow, to develop horrible taste in companions. I can tell you that there are a few folks here at Trinity who model that behavior, that appalling, indiscriminate regard for people. I can also unequivocally assure you that I am not today one of those people. So how do we let go of our bias and our judgment and our fear? That's a tough one. Only one way comes to mind, and that's to keep our eyes on the one with horrible taste in companions, the one who told us this scandalous truth in the first place and who was crucified because of it, because of all the prophets who faithfully shared God's outrageous message. He's the only one who's been raised from the dead.